Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger made sure that everybody knows how badly he felt and how angry he was about the LRT decision, but could his comments actually hurt Hamilton more than it helped? The idea of letting Ontario's developers hire and pay for their own building inspectors is being floated at Queen's Park, and boy, it's getting mixed reviews. We'll talk about that. And Prime Minister Justin Trudeau plans to sign the new NAFTA deal once Parliament resumes. May not be so easy, though. The NDP aren't sure whether or not they're going to support it. Neither are the Bloc or the Conservatives, for that matter. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. How far is too far uh, when it comes to criticizing senior levels of government? Uh, there are some people at Hamilton Council, apparently, that think that Mayor Eisenberger went too far when he started criticizing uh, Doug Ford and uh, Caroline Mulroney, that ma- for that matter, the Transportation Minister, uh, with their cancellation of the LRT project. Council Brad Clark, uh, among others, uh, suggesting that that can have serious long-term consequences. Uh, somebody who's been watching the political scene in town for a long time is, of course, John Best, the publisher of the Bay Observer. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, give us his perspective. Morning, John. How are you today? Just great, Bill. Thank good, you. Good. Well, I'll ask you, get up right up front to the, the first question. It, can you go too far when, when, you, when you're when you a mayor, a city council or whatever, and you start throwing stones at, uh, in this case, the provincial government? Yeah, I think you can. Um, you know, we're dealing with human beings at the end of the day, and they're political human beings, so they do have egos. And, uh, yeah, I, I think you can poison the water, so it makes it difficult to... Uh, uh, sit down and talk about other things. Um, you know, we're always uh, hearing uh, that, you know, allocations of uh, senior government money are, are politically motivated. And luckily, uh, you know, in most cases, that's not the case, that you, you do see uh, federal money getting spent. But in the case of LRT, we're really asking for something that nobody else is getting, which is a billion dollars. Uh, without us contributing a penny. So that is kind of like, that falls into the category of special favor, and I would suggest. And so, yeah, um, you know, if you get if you personalize the thing, uh, it certainly could backfire, I think. Well, I can remember back in the day uh, when Terry Cook was the regional manager, and, and Terry can remember this story quite vividly. He was, the, I'm sorry, the regional chairman. Uh, and he criticized uh, Mike Harris uh, rather it was pretty emotional, actually, because Terry was part of the uh, a panel called Who Does What, which they basically asked municipal leaders, what services should the city do, what service, services should the province do? And what Harris basically did is took the report and just said, okay, here's what the province is going to do, and the rest of you guys get, is going to get dumped on it. And that's when the downloading stuff started. And Cook was quite critical of Harris for that for the longest time. Uh, and uh, a lot of us on council at the time felt that we paid a price for that with services that probably could have and should have come to Hamilton that didn't, uh, notwithstanding the fact that we still had some some conservative MPPs. So it does come back to bite you from time to time. Well, and 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 that's uh, you know that's that's one reason why people should be more temperate in their language. But uh, and and in his case, I mean, uh, you know, the mayor accused the. The premier of a betrayal of Hamilton and a well, you called him a liar. Betrayal. Um, you know, I I think some people might well ask the question: Who really has been betraying Hamilton over the last ten years, uh, going back to the beginning of of this project? Um, in its early going, it seems to me that the mayor's fingerprints were all over a project that was really not being fully unfolded to to staff and certainly not to uh, council colleagues. We had a situation where millions of dollars were stashed away in the road budget 
to set up that LRT office that uh, existed during the mayor's first term in office. And that office, apparently, if you go by the memos that, that we have from that office, uh, had, a, had a mandate, officially or unofficially, of reporting directly to the mayor. Uh, and, and certainly uh, former city manager Chris Murray said in an open council meeting at one time that he was unaware of some of the correspondence that went between that committee and the mayor. So, you know, uh, this project has, has got quite a history, and if anybody wants to get into the chronology of it, you'll see a pattern of uh, holding things away from council, of money being moved around uh, to support LRT that wasn't approved by council. Uh, there's a, you know, to me, that's a betrayal of, uh, of the taxpayers of the community as well. Well, I had a, an offline conversation with one city councilor just a little while ago and uh, suggested that uh, with some of the things that the, the mayor was saying about uh, the provincial government, especially about the premier himself, uh, was, well, to use the old analogy, the kettle calling the pot black. Uh, you know, if you want to talk about being disingenuous, uh, now we find out in hindsight that the mayor knew about the province's concerns for quite some time, uh, and he did not inform council, nor, of course, did he inform the public about that. Well, there's a disturbing pattern of, of uh, things being kept from council. We had an instance of uh, during the stadium debate, uh, you know, eight or nine years ago, where uh, uh, the province made a proposal to the city to try to break the impasse over the stadium location, and uh, that was information that was not shared with council. So, you know, we, we've got a bigger problem here than whether... Uh, uh, some language used in response to a government decision is intemperate or not. We, we've got a serious functional problem right now. We are on the eve of a, of a commission, uh, well, a task force being struck to determine how to spend the money. Somehow the province has blundered their way into leaving the door open to LRT, which is uh, probably a mistake. Uh, the mayor's taking credit for that, saying that maybe his intemperate outburst was what uh, resulted in them putting LRT, at least as a notion, back on the table. But, you know, just looking at, uh, at, at one issue here, um, we, it looks like our city manager is going to be on that task force. And uh, right now, I would suggest that unless council speaks up, uh, uh, that individual uh, is going to be taking her cues from the mayor. And I don't think uh, the mayor's view on LRT are reflective of council's view at this point. The city manager reports to council, not the mayor. And I think if you did a, a straw poll of council, it's pretty clear that the pendulum is swung away from LRT. And uh, uh, she should be allowed to go into those meetings with an open mind and uh, at the very minimum and not go in the door as an advocate for LRT. Now, that's an issue that council needs to deal with, and they need to deal with it quickly. John, clear something up for me, would you? I think we and I had this conversation back in the, in the heat of this LRT thing just before Christmas. Did the city council uh, not at the time chastise Mayor Bob Bertina for uh, going out on his own and, and, and discussing policy with a, a senior level of government without council's uh, best wishes and council's direction? Uh, they, 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 they were pretty adamant about that. And it wasn't just chastising him, but they also passed a resolution saying you're not supposed to do that. I, I, my understanding is that's still on the books, isn't it? It is still on the books. And, and yes, they did. Um, you know, they accused him of being lukewarm lukewarm uh, on LRT so you, you know and, and not reflecting the view of, of council of the day 
So, yeah, I mean, the, the hypocrisy is, uh, you know, knee-deep here in, in some areas. The, um, the, as much as we could be critical of the mayor for his outbursts and his secrecy and uh, the way he's um, stick-handled this LRT issue, uh, frankly, to get us to this point, I mean, the, the, it should have been killed, in my mind, years ago, based on any kind of transit metrics that would have been dead. City building is really who do you believe kind of a thing. But we've really got to go after this council, uh, many of whom uh, have been around right from the get-go. Uh, even at this point, they're, they, they've allowed themselves to, uh, you know, it's not a case of they didn't know. It's, uh, as the British say, they didn't want to know. Uh, they just let this thing roll along, and now uh, we got a situation where council really needs to speak up and, and, and uh indicate where they are on the issue and they're not doing it you know it takes two to tango and the mayor wouldn't get away with this if if he had been subjected to the same kind of scrutiny that uh, bob Bertino was during his term but with that in mind uh and you know i i don't disagree that they, there has to be an established policy here and i also don't disagree that if the city manager is going to be on this panel that uh, she should not be working on behalf of the city she should be there as an objective observer that's uh, that that stands to reason to try to get some sense as to where that money's going to go. But uh, have we burned a bridge here? I mean, uh, you remember just after uh, the Ford government was elected, uh, the, the premier was here in Hamilton. It was an unofficial visit, but he talked to some business leaders up at uh, the airport in a closed-door session. Uh, and I was told by more than a couple people that attended that that he basically said, look, if Hamilton wants to get something out of this government, you better stop electing NDP members. So this guy does make it personal, so i got to assume that the kind of remarks the mayor had are going to have a negative impact. Well, you, you know, you like to say politics are out of it, but just think about it. We're a billion-dollar LRT, and uh, so that whole billion dollars, if, if it goes through, will be spent in the writing of the NDP leader of the opposition. Uh, so, to say, you know, the government is accused of making decisions based on politics, but you know what, they... There's not a vote there for for the government, um, you know, for either pulling it out or a, a vote against the government for pulling it out or a vote for it for putting it in. Um, you know, to suggest that politics don't play a role, especially in especially in this case where again the it, it's not simply allocating your share for sewers and roads and you know the various funding programs that exist between the senior governments and the municipalities. This is really a one-off. It's a special favor uh, to a community like Hamilton. And uh, essentially, we're focused on, um, you know, trying to cram all that investment into the lower end of the city uh, where there's no political uptick for the government uh, to be gained. I can't think of a more altruistic situation. Yeah, and the, at the other side of this coin, by the way, I don't think anybody is suggesting here that uh, that you have to be submissive and 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 you know meek about anything that the government, a senior level of government, tries to do. Uh, you certainly have to stand up for your community. But my understanding uh, is that you you save the harsh words uh, for behind closed doors. Uh, if you embarrass somebody publicly, as apparently one counselor did to Michael Andler at this meeting, Michael told me that himself when he was on the program last week. Uh, they don't forget that, and and, and there there are going to be some consequences. I don't know what it's going to be as far as the government's concerned, but obviously Mr. Andlar is pretty upset about the way he was treated by city council, and as a result of that, I'd be very surprised if he decides to invest the thirty million dollars that he's talking about putting on the table. 
Well, uh, I think it's off the table at this point. But, yeah. you know, I was watching uh, just before the show, I'm a little bit interested in what's going on south of the border, and I was watching Joe Biden uh, being interviewed on one of the morning shows today, and they were trying to pull him into uh, saying nasty things about Bernie Sanders, and they were trying to pull him into saying nasty things about certain members of the Senate. And uh, it was just interesting to see the way he responded. He said, look, I'm not going to, uh, he said, it's one thing to disagree on facts and decisions. It's another thing to call into question people's motives. And, and you know, that, that kind of diplomatic language that he was using. Uh, so they said to him, what would you say to Mitch McConnell if, uh, if you were behind closed doors and had 10 minutes with him? And he said, I would leave that uh, to the conversation with Mr. McConnell. Uh, you know, now you know Joe's an older guy, and I suppose some of that kind of talk almost sounds archaic. But yeah, but I, he's, I he's been burned a lot. Here's a, here's a man that's been a successful politician all of his life, and at his age, has a pretty odds-on chance of possibly becoming a presidential candidate, and and yet he refused to get pulled into even even in this highly polarized climate that we're now in and. 2020, he, he refused to get drawn in uh, and, and take the low-hanging fruit. And uh, I was kind of impressed with that. It's I would hope that people would see that kind of behavior and think it still has some value in our political discourse these well, days. Well, during his long and, and ultimately successful political career, I mean, Biden's been burned a few times by being a little too candid. So it, it's learning from stuff like that. And, and, you know, you can shoot your mouth off and probably get a headline one day, but, uh, you know, there's, a, there's usually a payback to something like that. Well, there could be, uh, you know, uh, I think I think the other mistake we make, quite frankly, uh, is is thinking that Queen's Park has been staying up at night thinking about Hamilton. Uh, this uh, LRT project, at the end of the day, is still a minor piece of their overall uh, big move that they're working on. They've got headaches all over the place with uh, now some of the GO expansion apparently in trouble. Uh, a number of the LRT projects are, you know, either behind schedule, over over budget. Yeah, there's this uh, education not a, thing. Not a direct uh, <laughs> Ontario problem, but you, you look at what's going on in Ottawa with their LRT, and it just seems to be... Uh, one disaster after another. Um, so, you know, I think I think what the Hamilton situation is, as far as Queen's Park is concerned, is a nuisance. Um, I think the minister probably blinked a little bit in setting up this committee. Uh, my view is that uh, she'd taken a lot of heat for the decision she made. Um, she probably should have just left it as as such. It was probably a mistake to come to Hamilton in the first place. But um, anyway, we've got what we've got, and I think now it's incumbent on our city council to send its member to this task force with a clear mandate uh, to at least have an open mind um, and and represent the, the, the views of council, not the mayor. Well, we'll see how they handle it in the days ahead. As always, John, really appreciate your time today. Thanks for this. Great pleasure, Bill. John Best, of course, publisher of the Bay Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Ontario government has uh, come up with some rather controversial ideas. Some of it has made its all the way all down the route to re- legislation. Others are just ideas that are kind of sitting there. One of them has to do with uh, redoing the building code here in the province of Ontario, and that includes building inspectors. 
And uh, they're suggesting right now that Ontario developers should be allowed to hire and pay for their own building inspectors. It's done, obviously, most of the time at the municipal level. City hires inspectors to do that sort of thing. But they say that that's part of the red tape that needs to be addressed. Uh, it's meeting with a lot of opposition from the opposition. But uh, a lot of people in the industry think it's maybe not a bad idea to at least explore. It, and again, we want to emphasize this is only a, a concept at this stage. They have not introduced legislation about this. So the minister in charge of this, the Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing, uh, Steve Clark, says they're thinking about it, but it's something that's on the table right now. Joining us to talk about the possibilities is uh, Jeff Pakin. Jeff, of course, is the president of New Horizon Developments uh, and uh, knows a thing or two about building stuff. He's been doing it for a lot of years. Jeff, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us today. I appreciate you calling me old right off the bat. Thanks, Bill. Well, right off the top, what do you think of this idea? <laughs> well, you know, there's there are smaller municipalities that can't afford the infrastructure to have inspectors for the various components required, and they have what they call a peer review, where one engineer, one independent engineering firm, will be the designing firm, and another independent engineering firm on behalf of the municipality will do the approval and inspection services for the municipality. So, you know, I think it's a misnomer to say the developer can hire their own. I think what would happen is uh, is there would be a, a pool of independent companies um, that are no different than independent engineering and architectural firms now that would be available to do the inspection services that are certified and trained and approved and, you know, they wouldn't work, quote-unquote, directly for the people who are designing the drawings, for instance, or for the people who are constructing the building. They would be a pool of independent people who have the skill and training to make those decisions that something is acceptable. So, you know, part of me has always wondered why a municipality takes on that risk uh, in the first place, why they don't outsource it to a private company that is properly insured and can uh, can take on that responsibility as a as a successful company that bids to do those services for a city in the first place. I, my understanding, though, Jeff, is in some municipalities, even as large as Hamilton or Toronto, whatever the case may be, uh, in some instances they actually do hire private sector people to do a, a, a much more detailed inspection, don't they? Well, they, they do when it comes to more complicated build forms. So, you know, if, if there's a you know, a, a concrete mid-rise building that's uh, five, six, seven, twenty, thirty stories. Uh, you know, there's there's a specific and and uh, more detailed skill set required to understand the nuances of that building code and to make sure that a that a drawing meets that building code. And so, there's only so many people within a municipality because they don't know if they're going to have, uh, you know, to their um, to their benefit, they don't know if they're going to have 10 applications or four applications come in at any given time. So that, you know, how do you staff that? And when when the applications outstrip the staff, there is the opportunity to outsource the, the review to a peering engine, you know, peer review engineering company or architectural company. And uh, I don't see what the big deal is. It's a, it's a bigger labor base and, a, and it's a bigger opportunity for you know the tax base to not be 
having to have all these people on staff if there's not the applications to support them. Well, and, and I'm glad you've clarified this, because, I mean, the way it's being characterized by some of the people who have expressed opposition to this is that uh, if the government were to go ahead with this, it, it's it's going to be the Wild West that, you know, developers can build whatever they want, whenever they want, and they just nudge, nudge, wink, wink, hire their own guy who says, yeah, everything's okay here. And that's I, I can't see that as a, as, as a realistic scenario. Well, not only is that not realistic, but there, there's a... Um, you know, an, an underlying message there that there's the opportunity to take somebody who has spent their entire life getting professional credentials that, that opens their own business, has their own insurance for this business, and they're going to compromise the standards that are intended by the building code in order to satisfy one customer. It's just a, it's a, um, it's not an appropriate way to look at what this opportunity or potential opportunity that's coming down the, the system now uh, offers and what it offers is a chance to to have more people with the appropriate ability and the appropriate independent set of eyes to look at at these things and make decisions on them that make sense to allow for you know proper construction to happen in a time timely fashion and that's that's really what the province is trying to to solve with this thing so as as you understand this, then, uh, for instance, New Horizon would not hire their own inspectors. You would have well, to go to a private company of, of where the inspectors are and hire them at your cost. One hundred percent. I mean, if they worked for us, that would be a, a, a wrongful <laughs> conflict of interest on behalf of us sure. to suggest our own employee. You know, that some of the comments that have come out from the naysayers, have been, you know, it becomes a business relationship. Well, I have a business relationship with the city of Hamilton. I write them checks. They provide me services, the, the, and, I'm, and I'm not slinging arrows at them. The problem is the accountability is different than when you hire a private company to provide those services. So if the, the, there were 10 approved city-approved companies that did the inspection service, and as a developer, we could hire any one of them, if they didn't perform in a timely fashion, we could replace them with another one, but we can't ask them or expect them to ever compromise what the appropriate answer is for, is, does this meet code, is this appropriate, can we continue with our, our design work construction? Where's liability in a situation like that? Well, that's the, the other interesting thing, because the liability for an inspection services uh, inspector would be with their firm so that they would have to have errors and omissions insurance and lots of it. And so to get that designation, insurance companies are in the money business. They don't hand that out with, uh, without knowing that you're properly trained and properly experienced in order to, for them to back up your decision-making. It's no different than the, the independent engineering firms we hire today to design the drawings for the buildings we build. They also go through this scrutiny and then they're double-checked by a city inspector. So if they're double-checked by a different independent engineer, I don't see what the, the difference is as long as it's done in an appropriate fashion. Now, and again, we want to emphasize to our listeners that this is only a proposal at this stage. The government is considering it. They're not moving ahead with this legislation. But i got to think, though, Jeff, as you've explained this, as you see this developing the way you think it probably might, uh, there's got to be a saving to municipalities here, too, isn't there? Well, I would think that, that um, the municipalities have a certain expectation of fees that come in for the services they're providing. And if they eliminated all of that, then there would be more certainty to, on their expense line item. 
they could just outsource 100% of it and, and manage the paperwork and manage the inspections without having to have a staff at the ready in case uh, there were new applications. You know, a few years ago, one of the provincial governments mandated a timeline to have applications dealt with, and it's it was sort of a, a here's municipalities how long you have in order to turn around a set of drawings, and that put a lot of pressure on the municipalities to become more responsive. And the idea behind it was to get drawings in and out faster so that people could get into their houses sooner, uh, and all of the good benefits that come with that. And that, uh, you know, forced them to, to reposition their staff and their number of staff. And then when there's a bit of a slowdown, now they have all this extra staff. If that was all done on an outsourced basis, I think it would free them from the responsibility of having to worry with uh, how many people, what is needed, what the economics are, and allow the private uh, engineering and architectural firms to deal with that issue too. So I would hope so. Uh, Jeff Bacon with New Horizon Development uh, talking about a proposal here from the pro- provincial government uh, to uh, hire, well, basically uh, be professionals uh, from uh, for the, to do the, all the building inspections that are going on. Uh, step back for a second, Jeff. Give me an analysis. Is the system as it is right now effective? Uh, does it need some improvement, some tweaking? So I will say that um, every builder could do a better job building a building, so I'm not picking on anybody when I say Every municipality could do a better job with the system, um, the same way we could all do better with our side of the equation. Having said that, um, I think that there are uh, there are easy solutions, this being potentially one of them, to allow uh, this system to be better, more efficient, more varietal. You know, just something as simple as um, if there was a pool of municipal inspectors that are all able to review a set of drawings. And if you apply in Hamilton, where they're very busy, but in Grimsby, they're not, why isn't the Grimsby inspector able to look at those drawings for you while he's not busy? Or the Thunder Bay inspector, while he's not busy, and turn them around in in faster timeframes. It's to everybody's benefit. The taxpayers benefit because their their revenue stream comes in sooner because the house gets built sooner or the, the new unit gets built sooner. So having that ability to pool the strength of the people who have that skill set, you can do it in many ways. And one of the ways is to create private firms that do this. I mean, there are private engineering firms that do analysis on condominiums every day, and they're hired by the independent condominium corporations and they do their reserve fund studies and their professional engineers, and they stand behind their work. And it's no different than the inspection service could work that way if it makes sense. Uh, There's still municipal control here, too, because, for instance, if you want to go and do a development uh, wherever it might be, uh, you've still got to go before the city for zoning, et cetera, and things of this nature, uh, planning and development, and there's there's staff for that. This is only the the inspection part that they seem to be focusing on. Correct. And and it's, um, you know, this has nothing to do with what is approved. Uh, in terms of uh, uh, the design and and nature of the ultimate structure. What this has to do with, once that's approved, how do you get it from a piece of paper to a a built form? And anything that can make that more efficient helps the whole system be more efficient. And and to be fair, uh, obviously when I was on city council some years ago, I I spent nine years on the planning development, so I got to know a lot of the people like you that, that build things around here. 
And I haven't heard anybody say get rid of all the regulations, but there are some concerns that maybe some of these things need to be modernized and, and, and brought into you know the 21st century. And getting rid of red tape is not a bad thing. I mean, sometimes that can be a, a phrase used by politicians to basically uh, eliminate jobs and things of this nature, but there are some holdups. And, and, and uh, just like in any other business, I would think, Jeff, time is money. If you have to wait six months uh, for a development to, to be approved, uh, what's that do to your costs? Well, and, and, you know, in, in any business, there should be some certainty and some accountability. So when you walk into the grocery store, you want there to be certainty that every day you walk in there, you can reach in the milk counter and there's milk there for you to take away. Can you imagine if you went into the milk counter and it was a hit and miss as to whether on a daily basis there was going to be any milk available? In some ways, that's how our industry is, is dealt with in that, you can make an application that can be turned around in a few months, and you can make an application that can be turned around in, in a year and a half. And there's no accountability and no certainty to an expectation for process. It's not that anybody's looking to, you know, sort of circumvent the appropriate process. It should just be known and reliable. And it's, uh, it's neither. So it's a big challenge. I got the sense that this is a, a rather timely discussion right now because when you listen to the comments from both the federal and provincial government, vis-a-vis uh, -vis budgets, it kind of looks like both levels of government are going to get back into the housing game. They, they've been gone for a long time, uh, which is one of the reasons why houses are so expensive these days. And when we've talked in the past with uh, Tim Hudak, who is the president of the Realtors Association here in Ontario, uh, he says part of the, the the solution is is housing stock. We need to we need more units, and uh, if they're going to infuse this with more money, uh, that's going to put a, a great deal of pressure on on the system, isn't it? Well, it's supply and demand is you know economics first year college university, <laughs> and in this particular province at this particular length of time, and it's been for a number of years, it's so much harder to get something approved than it was 30 years ago when I first started. And so the, the time lags create a built-up demand where the supply can't catch up. And, uh, you know, that, that's a combination of immigration, of changing households, of, of things that, that create demand in the housing market. So as long as there are more people looking to buy than there are the ability for people to sell, the price is going to go up. And it's not, you know, in the best interest of the long-term health of the world of, in southern Ontario that this continue, and I think both levels of government have, you know, recognized that and want to get investing in it in order to allow for more opportunities for some affordable housing. But, you know, one of the early mandates for the new provincial government was to open up the supply side to see if that helped with the relief of this bent-up demand, and they just haven't been able to get that done yet. So, we hope they keep trying. Sir, do. Uh, we'll see. As they, Well, the ball's in their court as far as that goes. Jeff Pakin from uh, New Horizon. Listen, before I let you go, uh, one of the other hats you wear, of course, is uh, with B'nai Brith, the dinner's tomorrow night. Give us an update. What's going on? Oh, it just couldn't be more excited. We've got, uh, you know, in an Olympic year, we've got gold medalist Mark Tewksbury, gold medalist Tessa Bonham, GSP, of course, one of Canada's uh, MMA heroes. Uh, representatives from the Bulldogs, the Ticats. Uh, it, it's a very exciting night. Dan Shulman, the silvery voice of the Toronto Blue Jays. Will be One of the best play-by-play -play guys in North America. Oh, phenomenal. And uh, for those of you who like to hit the little white ball, we have the Open champion from 2003, Ben Curtis, coming. So Excellent. It's, it's going to be a phenomenal night. Thanks for the plug. All right. Uh, any tickets left? Uh, it's, uh, day before, we can't really sell you any, so just... 
you know, come if you've got one. <laughs> if you don't, thank you. Thank well, you. we yeah, but we warned people about three, four weeks ago that look, exactly. get them now because this place sells out all the time. Well, I can tell you people listen because that worked. We had a nice flurry of orders right after that, so thank you for that. Excellent. Well, good luck with it. I know it's going to be a blast tomorrow night, Jeff. Thanks for the time today. Appreciate it, Bill. Take care. Jeff Pakin, of course, from uh, New Horizon Development. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday, the Prime Minister uh, wrapped up a uh, three-day caucus meeting in Winnipeg uh, where they basically, I guess, were planning strategy for the upcoming session of Parliament, which starts next week. Uh, on the same token, the, uh, the NDP are meeting in Ottawa today to do the same thing. And uh, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh says that uh, they're going to consider whether or not they should support the new NAFTA deal. Uh, the Prime Minister yesterday said that it's going to be the first priority for his government to get that thing ratified. Uh, it may not be easy, though, in a, in a, in a minority parliament that uh, we're facing these days. Joining us to talk about uh, the deal itself and uh, the possibilities of it becoming law here in Canada is uh, Marvin Ryder, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Marvin, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. Glad to be here, Bill. Uh, did you think when all these negotiations were going on over the last couple of years, I guess now, Marvin, uh, that uh, Canada that seems so involved in this, and Christia Freeland, of course, as, as the chief negotiator with us, that we'd be the last one to actually ratify this deal? Well, I didn't uh, say a year ago. I, I realized this was going to happen last month when uh, the House made it a priority. Right after they passed the articles of impeachment on Mr. Trump, they decided they would have their ratification vote. And then the question was, was the Senate going to deal with it in the United States before or after? I had assumed at that time they might deal with it after the impeachment trial, which would then get a ratification from the Senate at the end of January or early February. And then maybe Mr. Trudeau could do it the same day. Maybe they could be in sync. But uh, interestingly, because Nancy Pelosi held up those letters of impeachment, trying to get certain concessions, if you will, from the Senate, the Senate instead said, well, let's get this out of the road first. So they had their vote uh, earlier this week, uh, 88 to 10, I think, was the vote, or 89 to 10 in favor of ratifying it. So everybody else, Mexico, the United States is done. And now we turn to Mr. Trudeau. Uh, for most of last year, 2019, Mr. Trudeau had a majority in Parliament and could have easily approved this, but he didn't want to get ahead of them, and, and probably wise, because you might also remember in late November, early December of last year, there were those last-minute negotiations in Mexico where they had to make some changes. Even though Mexico had ratified it, they had to re-ratify it. So they were probably wise to do it, but now he's got a minority Parliament, and the question is, can he make this happen relatively quickly? His strategy announced yesterday was to introduce a bill on Monday, but have the vote next Wednesday, just a week today. Um, and he faces a problem. He needs one other party to come along with him, either the bloc, the NDP, or the Conservatives. And none of the three have actually jumped up and down and said, we're with you, we're with you, Justin, on this. So it's going to be a very interesting week ahead. Yeah, and opposition parties uh, feel it is their mandate to oppose. Uh, and that's the way politics seems to work these days. But you would think that the Conservatives, at least, uh, would, would be interested in, in, in being behind this bill. Not so much to put anyone beneath the, the Prime Minister's wings, but simply because it's, it's the right thing to do. And they're supposedly, uh, you know, the, 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 the political party of business. Right. So, Bill, let me give you a quick scorecard of where we stand as of today. Let's start first with the Bloc, the Bloc Québécois, which represents really just Quebec interests only. They have some concerns in this new NAFTA 2.0 or USMCA uh, around uh, farming provisions. Remember that Canada has given just a little more access to agricultural products to Americans, and of course that may hurt some farmers. And they're also a little concerned around uh, provisions around aluminum, 
which is a big industry in Quebec, those provisions say that the current levels of aluminum that we're shipping to the United States, those are fine. But if we suddenly started selling a lot more of aluminum, then tariffs might be reimposed, and they're not keen on this. So that's why they're saying, "Mm, I don't know if we'll support this. The NDP, of course, they have concerns uh, somewhat mitigated. One of their concerns was around changes to intellectual property rights, which were going to give more protections to drug companies to keep prices higher or longer. Those have actually been canceled now. But, you know, the, the same idea, hurting farmers, hurting the little guy. Now, the conservatives, they haven't come out and said they won't vote for it. This is their tactic. I think it's very clever on their part. They're saying, well, look, this deal just got renegotiated last month. We need some time. We need time to study it and go through all of this. We think we can support this, but probably in, oh, maybe April. And why are they choosing April? Well, a three-month delay in ratification, not only will that not make Mr. Trump very happy, but it would be a, a, a bit of an embarrassment for Mr. Trudeau on the world stage that when Canada is called upon to ratify something, they can't step up and do it. He doesn't want a ratification in April. He wants it now. So I suspect, while these are the initial positions of all three parties, there is some, uh, shall we call it, flexibility in those positions. And it'll be up to Mr. Trudeau to see if he can do a little horse trading to get one party, one of those parties. And actually, at this moment, I think the one he's got the best chance with is the NDP, because they've got a couple of other things they would like to see the Liberal Party do in this term of parliament. And if Mr. Trudeau says, look, I'll make that thing a priority, but you've got to give me this one here, they, they may very well come around. Uh, notwithstanding the fact that traditionally the NDP are philosophically opposed to international trade deals of any kind. Yes. Well, one of the things that they're wanting in this session of Parliament, and I know we're getting a little off topic here, but they would like to see a ban on assault weapons in Canada. Not a ban on all guns or handguns. They understand the need for sports people, what have you, to have access to those things. But the assault weapons, the rapid-fire, multi-round kind of weapons... And, and Mr. Trudeau yesterday also said that would be something that he was very interested in talking about to curb some of the gun violence that we've seen in Canada. I could see him going to them and saying, look, I, I can make something happen on this assault weapon ban, but I need you to do something here. And given these concessions that were made in the last round of negotiations on the drug prices, there might be enough there for Jagmeet Singh to hold his nose and say, okay, I'll support you on this, but maybe almost simultaneously introduce this assault weapon ban. We may see that all happen next week. Uh, One of the contentious issues as far as uh, Jagmeet Singh was concerned, according to his comments yesterday anyway, uh, he says the deal was something that was done behind closed doors. Uh, (laughs) That's how negotiations happen, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I saw that actually from from the NDP and the Conservatives who said, well, you know, that's why they need time to study it, because all these negotiations happen behind closed doors. And I was thinking the exact same thing. All negotiations happen behind closed doors. In fact, the worst thing you can possibly do is try to negotiate this out in the open. You know, then then you get to see the horse trading. You, You can't get anyone to state an honest position if you're always playing to the cameras and the media. We have to do the serious negotiation behind closed doors. That's, that's what Mr. Mulroney did, uh, what would it be now, almost 26 years ago, I guess. Uh, certainly Mr. Harper did those things. This is not a liberal thing or a conservative thing. This is just the way international negotiations are done. Uh, so there's that. Uh, we talked uh, just after the election about how Mr. Trudeau's going to have to really, as you play one off against another, depending on which issue he wants to get across. Uh, pipelines, obviously, he knows he's not going to get support for the NDP, probably should from the conservatives. 
But uh, if they're just going to you know, hold their breath and, and you know, not do anything about this to try to embarrass the prime minister, do they, do they do that at their own peril? Because, I mean, we do need a deal. Well, there's two aspects of this, Bill. First, Mr. Trudeau does have another strategy, and that is to simply say, look, I view this vote as a vote of confidence in this government. If you can't support me on this, let's call an election. Um, bring me down. I'm going to hold the vote, vote against it. I'm going to force you to vote against it. And if you vote against it, we'll go back and we'll campaign again. Um, now that's, that's pretty high stakes poker here because who knows if we had another snap election, just which way people would vote. You might remember the conservatives tried that in the minority parliament way back in around 1980 when Joe Clark was uh, prime minister. Mr. Trudeau had left the leadership of the leadership of the liberal party, Mr. Pierre Trudeau left the leadership of the Liberal Party, and they thought, well, since the Liberals are leaderless, we'll, we'll call their bluff. And by God, the Liberals voted against them, brought the government down, the snap election were held, and the Liberals were returned with a majority, not even a minority. So this is high-stakes stuff. Uh, of course, the other thing he can do is to point out again that, 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 as you point out, this silly thing, you're the party of free trade. You're the ones who are responsible for the first free, free trade agreement. If anyone's gotten religions, it's actually the liberals, because 26 years ago, the liberals were opposing free trade with the United States. So, yeah, we now see this. How silly of you. And they, they may very well try that campaign. It'll be interesting here as well, Bill, to see what role Andrew Scheer will play. Uh, although you and I know that he has said he is stepping down as the leader of the party, he is still the leader of the party until a new leader is elected. And that's not going to be for two or three months. Is he going to come out swinging? And, and maybe these will be his finest days as leader when he's unencumbered about having to please his party. Or will he say, look, guys, you know, I, I can't I can't take this to people and I don't want another election when we don't have a leader. He, he also has some significant soul searching to do here. But there's no flexibility in this. As, as uh, you know, the bill is the bill. I mean, the, the deal, rather, is the deal. Uh, you know, you can't tweak it anymore, can you? Well, I would have said no, and that's because, um, you know, we've already gone through a, a round of tweaking in Mexico in, in November. Um, and at that time, Canada, Christian Freeland said it's okay. This is the current government said it's okay, according to us. In theory, I suppose if there was something that really, really bothered somebody, you could do a side deal, keep it out of the main agreement and vote on the main agreement. But really, it is a take it or leave it proposition at this point, especially since the other two parties have ratified it. And, and Bill, let me also say this in case you know our listeners, we don't all have the time to pour through this bill with a fine tooth comb. I don't think of this as terribly contentious. Yes, it's the second round of NAFTA, NAFTA 2.0. But it really is not a, a major rewrite of what NAFTA was all about. It is a modernization. I think that's the right way to characterize it. The biggest thing of all is that 26 years ago, there was no Internet and trade on the web and what have you. So there are new clauses that have been added to that. But almost everything else is really minor tweaking. Now, again, I know some of your listeners are from the agricultural community, and they get really upset when I say that. But giving Americans access to one half of 1% of our dairy market, you know, that's not a huge, huge change. We didn't throw the doors wide open. So, you know, I don't think there's all that much here to really go to the, go to the electorate at large and say, well, I, you know, vote for me because I saved you from this nasty, nasty bill. It's really not substantially different. So I would have a hard time if I was the conservatives 
articulating why I can't support this bill. Uh, there's always going to be stuff that people are going to disagree with. You, you mentioned supply management in the dairy industry. Uh, there's, of course, the concerns about the auto industry uh, and the back and forth that went on there. But uh, And I hate to use Donald Trump as, as a barometer here, but given some of the stuff he, he spouted off about, he wanted to get rid of supply management. He wanted to basically tear up the auto pact and, and wanted cars made in the U.S. This is a much better deal than, than it could have been. Well, absolutely. And even what he got out of this between the three countries was an agreement that cars North America were going to have to have more North American content. I think, I think the numbers are something to the effect of going from around 50% North American content to 65% North American content. That is not bad news for any of us here on that continent. Uh, he's, also, there are clauses in there that say Mexico, you're going to have to help raise your wages, give your, uh, your workers at large a chance to unionize and get union rights. This has always been the argument for why jobs, in theory, were supposed to be fleeing from Canada to Mexico because the wages are so cheap, they don't have the union contracts. Well, this new NAFTA is actually going to bring much of that into, into Mexico. Now, it doesn't, it doesn't get them to equivalent job rates. Their pay will not be equivalent to what it is in Canada. But I, I think the minimum is that over a few years, it's going to get to $16 an hour. It's not a buck and a half an hour anymore. That's a significant wage rate for car companies to play and it starts to do a great job of evening the playing field. So, you know, even though I'm not a big fan of Mr. Trump in many ways, his bluff and bluster did cause some concessions on the part of Mexico that I think makes it a stronger deal. By the way, uh, I got an email after we had a conversation a couple of weeks ago, but uh, then after, I guess this was just around the time the U.S. had done their ratification, uh, and, and the topic was tariffs. And the question that the, the listener was asking, and I wanted to get your perspective on this, uh, because obviously we've been the victim of tariff. Uh, you know, Trump has imposed them on the steel industry and yeah. threatened to do it before. Is that whole thing off the table now that there's a trade deal signed, or can he still do that, uh, basically on a whim, which is what he did last time? Well, yeah, he he invokes a clause of a bill, uh, Section 232, which gives the president the right to impose tariffs uh, under uh, emergency conditions, basically war-type conditions. Now, that clause was put in uh, into this bill back in around 1950 after going through the Second World War, and it made some sense as follows. You know, if I declare war against Germany, then probably we shouldn't be buying German products anymore. We should be, and the president should be free to put tariffs on those. But it was meant to be construed in this narrow context of a war. What Mr. Trump has done to invoke that clause is claimed that the American economy was at war, quote unquote war, with fill in the blank, the Canadian economy, the Mexican economy, the European economy, the Chinese economy. And that's why he has been imposing tariffs. Now, my shock in all of this is that really the imposition of tariffs is the right of the Congress, both the House and the Senate. They're the ones who are really supposed to set that kind of economic policy. And I was expecting them to say to Mr. Trump, look, you have exceeded your bounds. You have gone where this bill was never meant to go. And then further, perhaps even to suggest amendments to the bill to make it much clearer under what point he can invoke these Clause 232 tariffs. They have done neither. And, and that has really come as a shock to me. Now, not so much in the Senate because it's Republican controlled and Mr. Trump is a Republican, so that they've got to be seen as supporting their person. I guarantee you, had it been Mr. Obama doing these, the Republican controlled Senate would be getting out the pens and the ink and, and making adjustments right, left and center. But the other thing that surprises me is that the House 
because it's democratically controlled, why they might not have taken up this cause. And instead, you know, they, they really focused for the better part of the last year on this whole question of impeachment, which isn't likely going to happen. The Senate is not likely going to find him guilty of high crimes and misdemeanors. If all of that effort had been put into rewriting Clause 232, we could all sleep a little better. But for the moment, no, Mr. Trump, he could wake up tomorrow and say, uh, you know, I, I think uh, uh, Hamilton Steele is, is uh, causing big problems in the United States, and I'm going to slap some more tariffs on you. Nothing in this stops him from invoking that clause. Well, on that summer note, we'll have to wrap it up this time. Uh, Marvin, thanks as always. Appreciate it. And thanks for the good news, too. <laughs> we'll talk. I do my best, Bill. We'll talk soon. Marvin Ryder at the DeGroote School of Business. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.